What should a sermon sound like? If you believe in sola scriptura, that's the question you should ask of this text. It's really the first sermon, the first New Testament sermon that we hear in the Bible. Acts 2.14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and he addressed them. The verb there, addressed, is implies divine inspiration because the Holy Spirit, we read in Acts 2.4, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit giving them utterance. Here, through divine inspiration, an apostle gives us this apostolic sermon, the very first apostolic sermon of the Bible. And so we do well to ask a question. If we believe that we are to follow the apostles, if we are to follow their doctrine, if we are to follow their practices, it's good to ask here this question, what is a biblical sermon? What is a biblical sermon? What should we hear at church? What do we want? What should we hear at CRC every Lord's Day? I want to answer that question this morning. What is a biblical sermon? What should we hear? What should we expect? First thing we should expect from a minister is a minister to be devoted to God. A minister must be devoted to God. We see Peter here in verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. And he addressed them this way, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Give ear. He's preaching to them. And notice he addresses the men of Judah and Jerusalem. Now we know from verse 5 that there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven. So there are many nations in this one place. But why does he just address Jerusalem and Judea? It's because he was a man devoted to God and God's word alone. He was commanded by Christ himself to preach the gospel to the Jews first. Right? Or to bring the gospel to Judah first. Jerusalem, Judah, Samaria to the ends of the earth. He's, he's following. This is solar scripture. Really following every jot and tittle of scripture. Not following the commandment, commandments or opinions of men. But devoted here to God's word. To be devoted to God's word alone. That's important. Because ministers can be tempted to devote themselves to just about anything. Prosperity, for example, is a huge temptation. That's the devotion you see selling ads on Sunday morning TV. Or today, entertainment is a huge devotion. So many churches have turned worship into a performance. It's a concert, a comedy club, with motivational talk. Politics. Some devote themselves to pundits, as if God's word tells you who to vote for. And once a church hitches its wagons to a side, it's a sign that this present life is more valuable than the free offer of the gospel. You see, there's a subtle temptation to follow trends, to market the church to specific niches and, and niche groups. And we look here at God's word and we find that we need to make God's word great again. Preaching needs to be great again. We cannot, as Calvin says, tie Christ's grace to this present life. We need to become, Calvin says, used to thinking that Christ's kingdom is spiritual. 
so that we may learn that Christ's good things are heavenly. We should not seek our happiness in this world. Ministers must seek their happiness and their ministry in God's word alone. They need to be uh, heaven-bound, not earth-bound. And this minister will be devoted to preaching God's word alone. Acts 20 and 14, he says, let, let hear my words. He's a preacher. And then he preaches God's word. That's what a preacher does. He turns to God's word. And we see the apostle here turn to the Old Testament. He turns to Joel. He preaches God's word. He's devoted to God. He's devoted to God's word alone. And so he preaches the word. But first things first, Acts 2.15. He says, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Remember, they're speaking in these known languages as we talked last week, and many of them thought they were drunk, and, and Peter offers a rebuttal. And I like this, <laughs> because the first thing we see in apostolic sermons, the first apostolic address, the first apostolic biblical sermon, we see confrontation. Peter's confrontational here. These people were being silly. It's not five o'clock somewhere. We're sober. And so he confronts their silliness. Like Christ, Christ often confronts the silliness in the church. There's silliness everywhere. You can probably go into church, any church in Missoula, and be instantly surrounded by silliness. So we must be confrontational. Favorite Bibles, turn with me to 2 Peter, or excuse me, 2 Timothy 4. This is an important verse for preaching the word. Here we get an apostolic charge. The first apostolic charge for preaching. Here we have an apostolic example. Paul in 2 Timothy 4, beginning verse 1, gives us this apostolic charge to the minister. This is really the charge of the minister. I charge you, he says. Paul charging the minister. I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. That's what ministers do. Preach the word. Then he tells us how to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Here's how. Reprove. Rebuke. Exhort, reprove, rebuke. And that's what we see in the first sermon ever. He's reproving, he's rebuking. The Reformation loved to reprove and rebuke. It's a biblical thing. So an apostolic sermon must offer a good rebuttal every now and then, or in my case, every week. Second, Apostolic sermons explain the fulfillment of God's promises. He turns to God's word, verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now Peter is turning to the Old Testament to explain now what is happening in the New Testament. And he says, verse 17, And in the last days it shall be, God declares. Now there's something very important going on in this verse. In the last days, Joel, this is a, this is, he's, he's quoting Joel 2.29. You don't need to turn there, but if you return to, turn to Joel 29, you will see that Joel says, in those days. And Peter interprets it and says, these are the last days. He's interpreting God's word. He's explaining the promise. It has been fulfilled. Christ was crucified and he has been raised from the dead. You, church, are now in the last days. The theme of his sermon is this. The church is in the last days. They have taken place. What Joel longed to see come past, Christ has come. We don't need to search anymore. The time is now. And it is now time, Peter will argue, for the church to act. It's now time for the church to move. 
In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The verb pour here suggests this unprecedented deluge. The spirit will be poured out on the entire church. Your sons, your daughters. And here the spirit will equip the church. They shall prophesy. Young men shall see visions and old men dream dreams. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. All flesh there means it's a limitless supply. Everyone, young, old, men, women. This is important because in the old covenant, the Holy Spirit was in short supply. Not that he was able, but the Lord only poured out the Spirit in a limited way, in an unlimited fashion. It wasn't that they were devoid of the Spirit. They had the Spirit, but not like we have the Holy Spirit today. There, there was a specific office of prophet. But here we will find there is a general office. You are a prophet. Your sons, your daughters. That is, when God promises his people salvation, he says he will give them his spirit. There's no greater treasure on earth than this. We have the Holy Spirit. There's no greater treasure than that truth. That is your truth. You have the Holy Spirit. And so what we find here is that apostolic sermons really equip the church, and they equip the church for a mission. What's the mission? Prophecy. They will prophesy. Verse 18, even on my male servants and female servants, in those days, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Whatever these visions and dreams are, <laughs> they have a goal to make you a prophet. Whatever... The Spirit is doing. It's leading us to prophecy. Now, what is prophecy? Prophecy is the special gift of God to understand. It is a gift of understanding. Now, we know visions and dreams in the Old Testament poured out on a specific few allowed them to understand God's character and God's will. And they would go and what? Prophesy and proclaim it to the people. But now that specific office is now a general office. And in a general way, we all receive the Spirit. And in a general way, we all receive these gifts. And what we find here in these visions, these dreams, and so forth, is a heavenly insight into God's Word. We shouldn't so much focus on the mystical as in the idea that we have this gift, this Spirit-born ability to hear, to believe, and to bear witness to the Gospel. As Paul says, your jars of clay, in hidden with each one of you, these weak vessels, is this glorious truth of the gospel. You are a weak vessel, but within you have the power of God and salvation. You have the Holy Spirit. And you need to let this treasure out. You don't hide it. But as Jesus says, you go on the rooftop. And you proclaim the great truth. Apostolic sermons have set the church on a mission to bear witness to this glorious truth of the gospel. Apostolic sermons also preach the necessity of faith. Notice here Joel says, even on my servants. Even on my servants. That means this promise is restricted to, it is limited. The promise is limited to whom? Believers. God will not profane his Holy Spirit in pouring it out into unbelievers, to those not justified, but those who are justified. You have the holy you are the holy. You say, no, but I'm profane. Yes, I know. 
but God has declared you holy and within you is the holy. Unless we believe and until we believe, we are not God's servants. And grace of the Holy Spirit is for the church. It's for the glory of God. Acts 19, 2, 19, he says, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. These wonders and signs just happened a little over seven weeks ago, according to where Peter was standing, and not today. But where Peter was standing in that day, merely seven weeks ago, all of these signs happened at the death of Christ. It has been fulfilled. Joel has been fulfilled. But there's still more to come. In the sun, verse 20, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. That is the glory of Christ when he comes to judge the living and the dead. And the point of Joel, the point of Peter here is it's time to act. Now is the time. You're in the last days. It's time to move, church. He says, and it shall come to pass, verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Joel indicates that these are the last days. These are the right days to call upon the name of the Lord. These are the days to have faith. These are the days to believe. These are the days to go out to the ends of the earth to bring the gospel. Today is the day of salvation. Joel and Peter is calling the church here, this apostolic sermon, this biblical sermon, biblical sermon should call the church to move, to move by faith, to move out into this world from this day, to move out into this world. you got six days a week. You move out of the Lord's day by faith to live for the glory of God, to bear witness to the truth, to bear witness to your faith, to exercise your faith with your neighbors. You have a mission here in Missoula to love Missoula, to reach out to Missoula. To bring the gospel to bear upon this dark age. That's an apostolic sermon. These apostolic sermons preach the free offer of the gospel. That is, they preach Christ and him crucified. Verse 22, men of Israel. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Again, he's preaching. Hear, hear, receive. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with, many, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Notice here the miracles of Jesus were not mere wonders. The wonders were the mighty works. What Jesus did with mighty works and these wonders, these signs bear witness to those mighty works. Now so many here on this text focus on the visions, the dreams, the wonders, the miracles. And they give too much focus into the mystical and the emotional and the experience. But everything here, the wonders, the spirit himself is highlighting Christ. It's focused on the gospel, the wonders, the visions, the dreams. They highlight, they focus on Christ and him crucified. That's the mighty works of Christ. And Jesus' mighty works are signs that the kingdom has come. Hebrews says that the powers of the age have come. Jesus said in Luke 11:20, "If by the finger of God I cast out demons." And he's about to cast out a demon. He says, "If I cast out a demon, guess what? The kingdom of God has come. Demon, boom, he's cast out. The kingdom has come. 
And those who saw these mighty works records, and recorded in Luke 7, 16 says, after he glorified and seized them, and they were all glor they glorified God, the great prophet has arisen among us, and they all say, and God has visited his people. By the mighty works of God, the response of the people is God has visited us. The kingdom of God has come. You see, the right use of all Christ's gifts bring us to Christ. The right use of Christ's gifts bring people into the kingdom of God. Apostolic sermons bring sinners to Christ. Apostolic sermons say we need to see, we must see Christ today. We must hear about Christ in this place. We need the power and might of God and apostolic sermons. Bring it. Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and sovereignty. I want to say sovereignty. Knowledge of God. It is the sovereignty of God. This definite plan. It was God's plan to crush his son. That's Isaiah 53.10. God the Father crushed his own son. That was the plan since the very beginning before the foundations of the earth. You crucified, he says, and killed by the hands of lawless men. God promised his son a cross, and he promised to go through lawless men. Lawless men because when they put Jesus Christ to death, they were in obedience to no law. They were acting outside of the law. But they were not acting outside of God's will. God's will to give up his own son. And so Paul said that God himself did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. It was the divine purpose revealed to the prophets that the Messiah should suffer. You see, God is sovereign. Apostolic sermons preach sovereignty. A sovereign God to sovereignly and forever remove all of our guilt. A sovereign God to give us an eternal salvation, to hold and keep us. That we might rest in God's sovereign hand, that we might rest in his power. And the power of the gospel might be a power we can never flee from, even when we fall in our troubles, even when we fall in our temptations, when we are faithless. A sovereign God says, I am faithful even when you're faithless. When you are faithless, I am faithful, for I cannot deny myself, says the Lord. Jesus says that no one can snatch you from his hand. No one can snatch you from the Father's hand. No one can remove you from the Son's hand. I and the Father are one. And it's a sovereignty that gave us a cross to give us a kingdom, to give us life everlasting. And it's a sovereign love that will preserve you to the end. Verse 24, God raised him up. Loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible not possible for him to be held by it. Notice here that apostolic sermons move toward an end. Apostolic sermons are marching to the beat of the resurrection. And they are moving always. They are always moving the church to look forward, to look up to the resurrection. Apostolic sermons move us by the glory of God to life eternal. Now, notice something here in this sermon. There's something very important here you might have missed. Very important sermon. Notice this. Where are you in this sermon? 
Where's the prosperity? God has promised us health and wealth, church. Where's the motivational talk? You can be a better you, a better husband, a better father, wife, employee, student. Where's the pep talk? Where's the Oprah Winfrey? Where's the politicking? You need to vote for this guy, church. Where's it at? Let's get rid of Caesar. Let's put Peter on the throne. We gotta redeem the city. We gotta control the state, the arts. Where's the prosperity? Where's the motivation? Where's the inter entertainment? Where's the smoke machine, the lights? <laughs> Who cares? Who cares where you're at in this text? If there is a God and he has done mighty works, if he has done these mighty works through his son, put him to death on a cross and raised him to life eternal. And if it is true that we are lying in misery and perishing in sin every day, and the only hope, the only answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if that is the truth of God, then we must preach that to the ends of the world while there's still time. famous Presbyterian J. Gresham Machen said, I quote, so desperate is the need by many to focus on the perishable, to engage in that which keeps us on earth, to adapt the message of the gospel to the fashions of the day. He said that in the 1930s, it's even truer today. But here in this place, let us, by the light of the gospel preached every Lord's day, move us from earth to Zion, to a blood of Christ that speaks a better word than any word this age might have for us. And let us find here in church and through the preaching of God's word a savior. And let us focus and let us hear and let us be moved to the glories of God in Christ Jesus, whose grace controls us. Whose grace controls us to the very end, no matter your sin, no matter your trouble, God's grace is greater. God will not forsake you. The only forsaken we should be worried about. So many of us are worried about our forsakenness of God, that we have forsook God. Here's the only forsaking you should be focused on, that Christ forsook heaven. Christ forsook the glories of heaven to die for sinners. God the Father forsook his son on the cross. That by his blood you might be washed clean from all your sins. By his blood you might be the redeemed. You might be the righteousness of God. That's the forsaking that we need to worry about. Not our own self and our own sins. Not you, but God and what he has done for us. That's the only forsaking that matters. And when this is true, the answer, where are you in this sermon? You are the object of God's love. You are the one he has cared about before the foundations and since the foundations of the earth to give you his son. That's where you are. And that's a glorious place to be. But let us focus on what he has given the gift.
you are the object of his giving, but it is a gift of his son that will cause you to serve him from now on into eternity. And it will be that truth, here we find the pains of death, but they've been loosened. Loosing are the pains of death so that our grave, you all have a grave, but in Christ, it's just a gate. It's a gateway to life everlasting. And nothing will be possible. Nothing will hold you in that place. Nothing will hold you. Death will not be held. Death will not hold on to you. For Christ has you in his hands. So let us by faith believe in the blood of Christ, live now and forever in eternal life. And to the King, eternally mortal, invisible, be glory now and forevermore. Amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.